Galatians 5 in your Bibles, please. Looking this evening at verses 13 through 18. Two weeks ago when we were considering the final verses of Galatians 4, we mentioned that the nature of liberty demands accountability and responsibility. I believe it also came up in last week's message, if I'm not mistaken, that liberty without responsibility is little more than anarchy and goes from being a blessing to being a curse. Our freedom in Christ forms the boundaries through which we serve and please God. It does not release us from expectation or from boundaries. And this is a a difficult concept for the modern Christian to process because the typical modern Christian is deeply vested in or at least deeply influenced by the thought processes of the godless culture within which we live. This modern godless culture is convinced that freedom is a release from responsibility, isn't it? When if you were to go up and ask the majority of people on a college campus what freedom is, it would have something very little to do with personal accountability, responsibility, and selflessness uh, in, in any respect. It's a culture of me, which insists that freedom, my freedom trumps your freedom. My happiness, comfort, and safety trumps yours. And as each man seeks his own at the expense of others, the world becomes an angry, vindictive place. And that's where we find Western civilization today. A very angry and vindictive culture. So the Christian, likewise inundated with this culture of me, the cultural Marxism that dominates our day, carries this philosophy into the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone rebukes him, he immediately uh, claims that he is offended and that he's being judged. If he feels conviction, he calls it a culture of shaming and denounces it as unloving and therefore unchristlike. But just as the liberty of a country is built upon the backs not of selfish and self-entitled people, but rather the selfless, just as a country of freedom is not established to give men license to anarchy, but rather freedom guided by the reasonable boundaries of personal accountability and responsibility, so too is the Christian life, the freedom that is in Christ. You were not redeemed so that you can do what you want without regard for God or for others, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not even for the lost world around you. Liberty insists upon, demands responsibility or else your liberty is lost in a mire of corporate selfishness. And this is what we find as we walk through the text tonight. I'd like us to read the entire text together. It's short enough to do so. And then we'll walk through it verse by verse. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Let's read through verse 18. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, 
Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under <clears throat> excuse me, the law. It is important, first of all, that we are reminded again of our audience as we consider this evening's exhortation. Paul says, brethren, for brethren, reminding us and reminding them that he is speaking to those who are children of the free woman by virtue of their salvation through Jesus Christ. They are believers. Paul is not making a blanket statement applicable to all men, believer and unbeliever alike. He is speaking to brethren and those that have have found redemption in Christ are his audience. And we who are in this liberty, we who are children of the Jerusalem which is from above, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who are children of the free woman, we have been called, the scriptures tell us, unto liberty. We've been talking about this liberty for, for a couple of weeks now and really focused in, in on it last week. Liberty from sin, certainly, but within this context, it's not speaking of liberty from sin. It is speaking of liberty from the letter of the law, being blessed rather to live in the freedom of the Spirit of God. We live free from the pressures of shame and guilt that would drive the pagan religious systems. We live free from the need to conform to a legal-based system System of living in order to incur favor with our God. We are already redeemed. We are set free in Christ. The work has already been done and now we live in the shadow of the work that has been done for us. We don't have to do the work. We stand before God in complete favor already because we are draped in the righteousness that is in Christ. This is the calling of our liberty. But then Paul immediately exhorts the brethren unto an essential mindset that is found in the second half of this verse. He says in the first half, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, but notice the second half. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. This is where our liberty takes us. This is what our liberty gives us the capacity to do that those that do not have this liberty cannot rightly do. The command is clear. Your liberty is not to become an occasion to sin, an occasion to follow the whims and desires of your own heart, an occasion to selfishness. Rather, your freedom in Christ has been designed and intended to free you to serve one another in love. And this brings us to a, a good opportunity to remember the definition this evening of love that we have in our church, our operating definition of love. Love is doing what is best for the object of that love, regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstances. You might have heard before, as it was a major preaching point for some years, that there are three different Greek words that mean love. You have agape, you have phileo, and you have eros. And as is typically preached, uh, they would divide it up this way, agape being divine love, phileo being brotherly love, and then eros being sensual love. And um, they imply, this preaching tends to imply that we need to agape love people, 
the idea that agape is the highest form of love or a heightened form of love. But the Bible doesn't really bear out this distinction as clearly as it has often been represented. You know, we've talked about this before, and many of you probably are with me on this now. You, you're, you're, you understand what I'm trying to tell you, but um, as we consider it, let's, let's just lay it down again. First, we understand that, yes, indeed, there are three different words for love in the Greek language, but only two of them are found in our Bibles. Eros is not found in the Bible. Only agape and phileo. Second, the idea that agape love is a better love or a more divine love than phileo doesn't really bear out in the scriptures as we study them. Jesus, in fact, regularly interchanged these two words for love when he was speaking about love. In John chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says this, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. Here in this beautiful verse, a tremendous passage regarding the love and devotion that exists between the two persons of the Trinity, being God the Father and God the Son, the word here for love that Jesus uses is not agape, but phileo. So then, if this is not an inferior, and, and we're talking about the love between the Father and the Son, right? This can't be an inferior love. There's no reason for us to believe it to be an inferior love or, or, or a brotherly love. So if it's not necessarily an inferior love, then what is the distinction between these words? Well, uh, you that know me know that I'm no Greek scholar. But as you study in the Greek, you find a general template. You, you, you find a fairly consistent usage of these words throughout the New Testament. And the difference is not so much about the quality of love, but about the emphasis of that love. Agape is not a better love or a stronger love. And the difference, I believe, is that when agape is used, it's speaking of a love that emphasizes sacrifice. A love manifest in sacrifice of something, be it your will or your time or your possessions. A love that manifests itself in sacrifice. Sacrificial love. Phileo is a love that has a little bit of a different emphasis. It seems to be an emphasis on loyalty. So brotherly love is, is a good thought. I mean, as you consider the idea of loyalty as opposed to the agape type of love with sacrifice. But that seems to be the breakup. Agape love is a sacrificial love. Phileo love has the emphasis on loyalty. It's not that one is greater than another. It's that they just manifest themselves in, in a little bit of a different way. And so as John 5 verse 20 speaks of the father's love for his son, within this context, phileo love makes absolute sense here. That the father loveth the son and showeth him all things to himself. There's this aspect of loyalty coming out in the love. There's this aspect of devotion. And that makes perfect sense. Now as we come back to Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, and this is where we're going with this, Paul is using agape here. And that's the love which we find. And that is by far the most common love spoken of in the New Testament. So much so that we can rightly say that biblical love is this agape, self-sacrificing love. That's what, that's what God is regularly talking about when he's speaking about biblical love. And as we bear this concept out, we find that the liberty which we have in Christ is intended to facilitate this kind of love. Sacrificial love. Love manifest in sacrifice. 
Now that's a far cry from being free to do whatever I want and run over anyone in the process because I'm free. That's freedom, right? In fact, this concept of being free to do whatever I want is completely foreign to the scriptural presentation of the Christian life. Now remember what book we're in. We're in the book of Galatians. The Galatian church has been ravaged by Judaizing legalizers who have sought to bind them to the letter of the Mosaic law. Paul tells them that they are not under the law, but rather they are given freedom in Christ, which they are to use to serve one another. He then says in verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, and by word meaning saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, Paul tells us, is the fulfillment of the law. We, we briefly touched on this last week. We said we'll, we'll talk about it more this week. It's this week. To love your neighbor as yourself is a command which spans the entire length of the Bible. The law is commanded, commands it of the Israelites in Leviticus 19.18 Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself I am the Lord Jesus listed it among the two great commandments in the Gospels Matthew 22 verses 36-40 A man asks Jesus Master what is the greatest commandment in the law Jesus said unto him Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the word of God hangs on these commandments. Love God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here these Judaizers have been compelling the church into the bondage of the law of Moses. And much to the contrary, the scriptures reveal that the divine standard by which, you, by which the law in its entirety is fulfilled is in expressing biblical love to those who are around you. Sacrificial love, the kind of love that's defined in 1 Corinthians 13, the love which suffereth long and is kind, which envieth not, which vaunteth not itself and is not puffed up, which doth not behave itself unseemly, which seeketh not her own, which is not easily puffed up, which seeks no evil, which rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in, rejoiceth in truth which beareth all things and believeth all things and hopeth all things and endureth all things. This is the fulfilling of the law. You fulfill the law when you love God with all your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself. That is the fulfillment of the law. Now, in yourself, you could never attain unto the standard. This is the de facto problem with the law. Human sin nature makes such a standard unattainable. But you aren't in yourself, are you? You don't live in yourself. When you wake up in the morning, you aren't in yourself. When you go to bed at night, you aren't in yourself. You are in Christ if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by putting your full faith and trust in Him. And so it is for you not to conjure up this kind of love but simply to submit yourself to Christ and to his spirit which indwells you 
who will, through His Spirit, work this love out in you. So we don't need to follow the letter of the law. In Christ, we have already fulfilled the law. As you live in Christ, you are living, you are the living embodiment of the law. You have fulfilled the law as you live in Christ. And we manifest this fulfillment when we obey the law of Christ written upon our hearts as born-again believers. So we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and thus are among those who have been declared righteous, having fulfilled the law in Christ. And now through Christ we have been given the capacity to live out the law, to exemplify the fulfillment of the law through serving one another. But that doesn't mean we will. Notice the warning Paul gives in verse 15. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Paul warns us here. Love is the fulfillment of the law. All the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Wonderful, that's great. We're, the, the law has been fulfilled in Christ. And as we work out Christ in our lives, we are fulfilling the law as well. But he says, if you bite and devour one another... Take heed, be warned, because you can be consumed one of another. If we as believers spend all of our time picking each other apart, metaphorically biting and thus devouring one another, Paul says don't be surprised when you have completely consumed each other entirely. Now the way that Paul words this in the Greek reflects that Paul assumed this to be the current state of the believers. He's warning them because this is where they are right now. If you continue to bite and devour one another is what he's saying. He's not warning them that this could happen. He's telling them this is happening right now in your church. You are biting and devouring one another and take heed. You are going to be consumed if something doesn't change. The church had become steeped in argumentation and judgmentalism. And this is the natural outworking of legalism, isn't it? Doesn't legalism naturally work itself out in judgmentalism? I mean, isn't that kind of how legalism works? You have a checklist, and so you're comparing yourself against a checklist, and you're also comparing yourself against everybody else's checklist. And you say, oh, I'm better than them because my checklist is better than their checklist, or my checklist is more checked than their checklist is checked. Which means I'm better than them. And this is the natural state of legalism. This is what happens in a legalistic church. They begin to bite and devour one another. Gossip will be rampant. Backbiting will be rampant. All of these things will happen because of a legalistic standard by which everybody is trying to one-up everybody else in righteousness. Paul warns here that they are also um, the natural... That, that their biting and devouring, excuse me, is also the natural outworking of a group that would attempt to live in freedom apart from love. Where you find Christians operating outside of the truth in love, you'll find a church operating in conflict. Whether it's a legalistic conflict, where they're operating within this realm of checklist Christianity, or whether it's a license conflict where the church is trying to operate in freedom, but they're rejecting this concept of by love serving one another. So the freedom is a me-centered freedom. Either way, the church is going to be in conflict. 
People will be fearful. Not just of sin, but of operating outside of accepted norms. Because they know that the subculture of the group is to bite and devour one another. People will be berated and defamed for their theological disagreements. And this is not the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of liberty. The spirit of Christ rebukes sin. There's no doubt of that. But it is not a culture of legal demands concerning one's actions. It is not a culture that bites and devours its own until everybody has either been conformed or consumed. And that was the spirit in the Galatian church. They were going to bite and devour one another until they all conformed or until they were consumed. So as we consider the reality of liberty in Christ, we find that this liberty is, as all liberty is, a delicate balance. Liberty seeks to allow men to live their lives according to their own conscience, but not at the expense of the needs and lives of others. We are to stand fast in our liberty, but not under any circumstances use that liberty as an occasion to the flesh. For this fleshly outworking of our liberty will bring nothing but carnality and in the end, destruction. Which, by the way, is the same result to those that persist in legalism. If you live in liberty outside of love, you will meet the same end as those that live in legalism. Both directions are dangerous. So there's this balance. There's this delicate balance. And what is the solution? How can we maintain this balance whereby we live in the liberty of Christ without falling into license? The word in the Bible is licentiousness. Do you hear the word license in that? Licentiousness. That which is characterized by license. Speaking of actions which are driven by a feeling of license to do what we want. I can do whatever I want and I'm going to do whatever I want. That's licentiousness. And the answer is found in verses 16 through 18. Verse 16 says this. This I say then. What's the solution to the balance problem? Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. This is it. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Paul says that if you walk in the Spirit... The lust of the flesh will not be fulfilled. The concept of walking in the Bible speaks not of physical walking, but rather the manner in which you live your life. A, a Christian walk is the Christian life, right? When we talk about my walk with the Lord, it's about how I interact with God. It's about my fellowship with the Lord. It's about my Christian Life. It speaks of the, the day-by-day, the moment-by-moment activities and actions that you take. Uh, the Christian walk, walking with Christ, we are actually speaking of how we live our lives before the Lord on a moment-by-moment basis. And this statement is, is made quite stringently, dogmatically. No qualifiers here. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. This is the divine solution... To the perceived need that legalism has. Legalism is often, especially among Christians, legalism is an attempt to direct men's actions by insisting that the way they react towards certain rules will determine their standing with God. 
That's what legalism is. That if you follow these rules, you're right with God. If you, did, if you don't follow these rules, you're wrong with God. And so legalism, in, in, in giving this standard, what they're trying to do is direct men typically into right actions, right? You say, if we, if we just have this as the rule, then men will do right because they'll, they'll stick to this rule. It's an attempt to keep men living moral lives by virtue of guilt and the threat of punishment. That's legalism. But without this guilt and threat, the question becomes, won't men simply fall into license? If there's nothing hanging over a man's head that says, do this or die, won't he just do what's wrong? Won't he just fall into license? Won't he fall into licentiousness? Where there's no sense of guilt, there's no threat of punishment, where does a man find the motivation to do right? I was talking to a a woman at the jail this past um, Wednesday. And she was really struggling with this. She wasn't quite ready to accept the gospel. She was one of those that had to be in control. And she couldn't let go of control. And I I discerned very early in the conversation her deep need for control. And so I was very blunt with her. and, And started talking to her about the fact that, hey, as long as you feel like you need control over your own everything, um, Christ can't help you. Because you've got to humble yourself before Him and yield yourself to Him before He can redeem you from your own sin. And so as we were going through this conversation, she was struggling so much with the idea that if God has forgiven people uh, of their past, present, and future sins, then I can sin without consequence. And in a manner of speaking, this is one of those things that troubles people about grace, isn't it? The idea from Romans chapter 5 and Romans 6... Romans 6.1, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul knew that because he had just presented the clear gospel, the gospel that says if you have been, if you believe in the name of the Lord, you are justified. It's not about what you do or don't do. He knows the argument that's going to come up next. And the argument that's going to come up next is, well, then can't I sin? And Paul says, well, God forbid that you would. But this is typically what motivates legalism. There's got to be some sort of compulsion in a man's heart to do right or he won't. The divine solution, however, is not legalism. It's not debt or guilt or threat. And this is the beauty of salvation by grace through faith. The divine solution is the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is what compels us to stand fast in our liberty in Christ without using that liberty as an occasion to the flesh. In fact, the text indicates that when we are walking in the Spirit, when you are, are, are walking in fellowship with the Spirit of God, when you are in fellowship with, with the Holy Spirit of God, you will not, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking in the Spirit not uh, is not only the divine solution to licentious living, but also the divine solution to our sinful desire, which would naturally compel us to moralistic legalism. The Spirit of God allows us to reject the letter of the law in order to have favor with God without falling into sin and without falling into license, licentiousness. And we walk that line, and we can only walk that line as believers as we're walking in the Spirit. Paul then explains in verse 17, For the flesh 
lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. The flesh and the spirit are complete opposites, 100% opposite desires. And since this is the case, when we are walking in the spirit, under the spirit's control and aligned with the spirit's will, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If I'm walking in the spirit, I'm walking this way, the flesh is going that way, I'm not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Likewise, the other way works as well. If I am walking in the flesh, under the flesh's control, and aligned with the will of my own sinful flesh, I will not fulfill the desires of the Spirit. I'm walking this way, the Spirit's going that way, I cannot fulfill the, lust of the, uh, the, the, the will of the Spirit, because I'm fulfilling the lust of the flesh. There's a battle, therefore, between two opposing powers in your life, if you are a believer. If you're an unbeliever, then you're dead in the flesh. The flesh, it's, it's the flesh all day, every day. The best you have to hope for outside of Christ is moralistic legalism because there's no way that you can do the will of the Spirit outside of the indwelling Holy Spirit. But if you are in Christ, then you have a battle that's raging in you every moment of every day between two opposing powers. And next week we'll consider the specific actions that reflect which of these forces is dominant in your life. You can know which of these forces is dominant. And you can know as we study the lust of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And we'll talk about that next week. But for tonight we consider this on a conceptual level. What we need to remember in this regard is that both the old sin nature the flesh, and the new redeemed nature, the spirit, are alive and active in you. Your flesh is not dead. It's there. It's alive. When you get saved, your flesh does not die, nor does it disappear. It remains alive and well. The difference is now that you have that second nature within you, which enables you to unplug yourself from the power of the flesh and to plug yourself in, be motivated and empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Paul spoke of this same battle in Romans chapter 7, where he gives a, a pretty frustrating monologue about the struggle in a heart between the flesh and the spirit. He says this in verses 14 through 25 of Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, it's what I want to do, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. I have the will to do it, but not the capacity. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, Evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, 
But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Then he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh... The law of sin. Paul describes a scenario of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The flesh compelling him to do what his heart and mind through the spirit knows he should not do. It's a battle because the flesh and the spirit want the exact opposite things and they are contrary one to another so that you cannot do the things that you would. You can't do the things you want to do. Your mind and your heart want to serve the Lord, but have you ever been there? Where you know what's right and then you do wrong and you're like, I knew what was right and I didn't do it. And I should have done it. And there's no reason why I shouldn't have done it. But I didn't do it. That's a frustration, isn't it? Ugh. But the flesh is lusting against the spirit. And the spirit is lusting against the flesh. And they are contrary one to another. So that you cannot in the flesh do what you would. But you know, Paul finishes Romans 7 by saying something else. He says... O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, that with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He thanks God that though he still has this sin nature in him, he has a heart and mind that desire to do what's right before God. And this battle rages And as this battle rages, we have the distinct opportunity. And here, get this part, because this is the part that matters. I didn't just give you a way out. The Bible didn't just give us a way out. Oh, sorry, we got the flesh, and that means we can't do right, and we're going to sin. We have a distinct opportunity to overcome the power of the flesh. If you walk in the Spirit... Ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. By submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit of God, you can short-circuit the flesh's capacity to take you to that place of wretchedness. For all this, however, the battle still rages. And the last thing we need when fighting the battle is another disadvantage. Which is why Paul is so baffled that these believers desire to be under the law. Do you know that the law is a disadvantage to this battle? Paul desires that they would recognize the constant struggle with the believer and with the flesh. And then seek... And what he's baffled about is that recognizing this battle, then they would seek in some backward attempt to control their own sin nature to submit themselves under the guilt and condemnation of the law. That is crazy. It is crazy to submit yourself under the guilt and condemnation of the law to try to manipulate your flesh into yielding its power. To try to Manipulate the flesh into thinking that 
it should do right, or to feed the flesh, but still get moral actions by feeding self-righteousness, which, by the way, is as much fleshly as anything else. So you feed the flesh through self-righteousness, saying, Aha, look, look, I read my Bible today. Feed the flesh with self-righteousness. Look at how godly I am. And you're feeding your flesh while also appeasing your conscience. And Paul is baffled. If you are trying to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, then why are you submitting yourself to the law that will do nothing but drag you into guilt and condemnation to, and help you feed the flesh? If you and I are going to struggle for the rest of our lives with the desires of the flesh, how crazy is it, spiritually insane, to submit ourselves to a false system that's driven by guilt and judgment? The flesh is already all about guilt and judgment. Should this reality not cause us to flee to the first avenue of grace we can find? Should this reality not cause us to fall down at the feet of Christ and beg Him to take from us this kind of life? Should this reality not heighten the blessing of the Spirit of God within us who not only intercedes on our behalf, but enables us to walk in His power and so not to walk fulfilling the lusts of the flesh? And this is the very reality of grace that overshadows Paul's exclamation in Romans 7. We read all the way to the end of chapter 7 in, in Romans, where Paul found some consolation, right? In the reality that though his sin nature is still present and active and, and bringing him to a place he wouldn't want to go, yet in his heart, in his mind, he still served the law of God. But just after Romans chapter 7 verse 25 comes Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Now remember that the chapter divisions in our Bible are not inspired. The chapter divisions were added much later. They were not in the original text. The chapter and verse divisions are given to help us. To help us divide things up. To help us uh, memorize. To help us reference. You know, if I were to say, turn to the 15th paragraph of Romans, it would make it would take you forever, uh, three sentences into the 15th paragraph of Romans, it would take you and I forever to figure out where I'm trying to preach from, right? But if I can say, turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 3, then you can get there quickly. So all of that was added for our benefit, but it's not in the originals. And sometimes this synthetic breakup can be unfortunate because it breaks up two thoughts that really ought not be broken up. And so you'll stop reading at Romans chapter 7 verse 25 and go, sigh, I guess I'll just live in my flesh forever. Wait, Paul says, rolling over in his grave, I wrote an epistle. The epistle didn't have chapter breaks. Continue, please. Keep reading, please. And this is what you would find if you kept reading. Romans chapter 7, verse 24, now all the way through Romans chapter 8, verse 4. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of Christ, uh, of life, excuse me, in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Remember where Paul was starting here in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. He was starting with the fact that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal. He was talking about the Mosaic law. And he gives this description under the law of, of the, the difficulty he was having and recognizing what he wants to do, but not being able to do it. But then he says, look, we have the Spirit of God within us, and through the Spirit of God, we have the capacity to overcome the flesh. The flesh is dead as the Spirit lives in us. There is no condemnation. You should live, you should not be living under the condemnation of sin, believer. If you are living under the guilt and condemnation of sin, then you need to reevaluate your understanding of grace because there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Is there conviction for sin? Absolutely. If you have sinned and you're convicted, that's God working something good in you. You confess it, you forsake it. And that forsaking it is the part. We don't live compelled by the guilt of our past actions. We live compelled by the Spirit of God that is within us. He continues, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In the Spirit, the very sin nature with which we fight, it is sin that is under the condemnation, not us. It is sin that has been condemned, not you, as you walk in the Spirit. I am free from the law of sin and death because Jesus has done for me what the law could never do. Thus the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us as we walk in the Spirit. So Paul says in verse 18 of Galatians 5, But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. If you are led of the Spirit, then the flesh is opposed and it is conquered. And you are not under the law. Every moral advantage of the law is accomplished in this system. Every moral advantage of legalism is accomplished in the system where you walk in the Spirit. And it's not accomplished by guilt, nor is it accomplished by judgment. It's accomplished through grace and through forgiveness. And this is the reality of your Christian life. You do not live under the condemnation of your sin. Will you still sin? Yes. Will it be a frustration? Yes. Will you fight this battle until the day you die? Yes. But you do not live under the guilt of the condemnation of that sin. You are free from that guilt. You live under grace and forgiveness. And as you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of of the flesh. And so we see that the covenant of grace secured through Jesus Christ is superior in every way to the law and accomplishes everything that the law sought to do without the condemnation and the judgment. The application of this truth has been scattered throughout the sermon, but let's kind of bring it all together for our edification. First, Application number one. Your liberty in Christ in no way excuses or facilitates a love for the world. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, you're probably quite familiar with it by this point. 
text tells us this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh is the first of three elements of this material world, which we are explicitly commanded as believers not to love. And there is no exemption for this in the teaching of Christian liberty. Christian liberty does not give you license to love the flesh. Peter describes believers in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, saying this, saying this, as free, not using your liberty as a, excuse me, for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Our freedom in Christ, as one of Christ's own, gives us no divine license to sin, to evil, or to anything which operates outside the word and the will of God. And to use our freedom for this purpose, to use the reality that we have been freed from the condemnation of sin and from guilt in order to operate under a proverbial get-out-of-jail-free card, or in a capacity that we would be, feel free to sin without the inconvenience of having a guilty conscience, is to misuse grace and to scorn the character of God. We could go to various other passages. I mentioned already Romans chapter 6, verse 1 this evening, that, which exhorts us to never continue in sin, that grace may abound to our behalf. We could go to Romans chapter 14, where we find that our liberty in Christ is meant to be restricted without question to the personal testimony and conscience of our brethren. Your liberty in Christ is under the divine restriction of your brother and sister in Christ's conscience. We could go to Hebrews 12, which reminds us that the believer uh, in sin will be a believer chastened in some capacity by the Lord. But the point has been sufficiently made, and the exhortation of the passage at hand is entirely sufficient. Only use not your liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Your liberty frees you to do whatever is necessary to exhort, to edify, to encourage, and to bless. Your liberty gives you the freedom to enter the lives of others and not offend them or confuse them with liturgical expectations or standards. Your liberty gives you the freedom to encourage and edify those whose conscience is far more sensitive than your own. And that is the freedom that you have in Christ. So your liberty in Christ in no way excuses or facilitates a love for the world. Number two, your freedom from the flesh is dependent upon your walk in the Spirit. Your freedom from the flesh is dependent upon your walk in the Spirit. Your capacity to overcome sin, your capacity to do everything that we just spoke about for the brethren, to exhort and to encourage and to edify, is 100% dependent upon walking in the Spirit. We'll talk more about this concept next time. But this is uh, not about some feeling or about some sort of pull-by-your-bootstraps your determination. It's a submission issue. It's an obedience issue. It's a trust issue. 
It's about you yielding your will to God's will. It's about you trusting God to do in you what you cannot do for yourself. It's about you choosing God's priorities above your priorities. It's a mindset. It's not an effort. It's an outworking of yieldedness, not an outworking of discipline. All right? And this is somewhat subjective and can be somewhat difficult to describe. I can't fully describe to you what it means to walk in the Spirit, except to say that when you're in the Spirit, you'll know. It's the difference between climbing stairs and riding an escalator. It's the difference between rowing a boat and being carried along by the wind. Both might look the same and endeavor to reach the same destination, but one of them is your effort, one of them is not. You'll know when you're trying to conjure up the fruit of the Spirit on your own or when it's just bubbling out of you. You'll know when you're trying to conjure up godliness and when it's just flowing out of you. It's something that every Christian who has walked in the Spirit can testify unto. What it is to be led by the Spirit in your actions. What it is to feel no compulsion toward the flesh because you love God so much that the flesh has no allure unto you. That's what it is to walk in the Spirit. I can't give you the, the, the dogmatic, you'll feel this and then you'll feel this. It's not like that. The Spirit is an impulse that leads us and guides us. The Spirit guides our actions and our decisions. The Spirit compels us to want righteousness, to love righteousness, and enables us to overcome the world and the flesh and the devil. When you're walking in the Spirit, simply put, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How do you know you're walking in the Spirit? When the Spirit of God is manifesting Himself in you. When the fruit of the Spirit is manifesting itself in you. When you are not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. This freedom will not be found in your righteousness. And it will not be found if your righteousness is being sought through the law. This freedom will not be found if you are persisting in the flesh. This freedom... This freedom in the Christian life is, direct, is a direct extension of your walk with the Spirit of God. So your liberty in Christ in no way excuses or facilitates a love for the world. Your freedom from the flesh is dependent upon your walk in the Spirit. Third and finally, your battle with the flesh will not end until you leave your flesh. You need to understand this. While you have the capacity through the Holy Spirit of God to never ever sin again, if you're a believer, you have that capacity through the Spirit of God, you will sin again. You are human. And the battle between the flesh and the Spirit is perpetual. You will fail. You will falter. Now this is not intended to give you an excuse. It's not intended to make you feel good about your sin. It's not intended to discourage you either. But we need to live in the reality of the situation in which we live. You can overcome a sinful habit. You can overcome a sinful propensity. But you will sin until the day you die. And this is the hope of the resurrection. This is what makes the resurrection so sweet. The hope of the day when we will be separated from our earthly bodies and receive a heavenly body free from the effects of sin and free from its sin nature. Not long ago, we considered Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, which tells us this. Ye have not re yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. 
right before Paul speaks of the chastening hand of the Lord and its positive effect on our relationship with Him, he tells the believers that their struggle with sin hasn't killed them yet. Your fight isn't drawing blood. You're in the fight of your life, but even if this fight did mean your death, it wouldn't result in anything other than eternal life. You have everything to fight for and you have every tool at your disposal to win the battle day by day. Will there be losing days? Probably. But it's not because you don't have the tools at your disposal. It is a day by day battle and it's one that we can't escape. You can't just check out of this one. You don't get a sick day from your flesh. You can't just call into your flesh and say, hey, I'm not really feeling like fighting with you today. Can, can you just lay off? doesn't work that way. We could sell all we have. We could lock ourselves in a monastery and be left alone with only our thoughts and we would soon realize exactly how deeply our flesh goes, how deeply our own thoughts will betray us into the flesh. But through the Spirit, you can be victorious and only through the Spirit. Next time we're together, we'll consider in great detail what it means to walk in the Spirit. And I, I pray that everyone will be here. I feel like I'm kind of leaving you hanging this week. Just a little bit. We've, we've encapsulated things pretty well, but at the same time, I do feel like I'm leaving you a little bit hanging because there's so much more to talk about with the Spirit of God and, and with walking in the Spirit. In that sermon, Lord willing, we'll better understand how uh, we know when we're walking in the Spirit when we are not walking in the Spirit, and when we recognize we're not walking in the Spirit, how to change that. But for this evening, there is still much to meditate on. Your liberty in Christ in no way excuses sin. Your freedom from the flesh is dependent upon your walking in the Spirit. And your battle with the flesh won't end until you leave the flesh. My prayer this evening is that God will, will help you as you respond to the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, and also to prepare your heart as next week we get into the lust of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit and how it is that we can find day-by-day -day victory in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you that your Word gives us this stirring description of why the law is not needed. The reality that we have everything that the law would supply. The moral righteousness through the Spirit of God without the guilt and condemnation that would drive us under the law. Help us to rejoice in this reality. Help us to see that we don't need to legalize our lives in order to do right. And in fact, by legalizing our lives, we're crippling our capacity to walk in the Spirit. I pray for every man, woman, and child in this room that they would not be living under the condemnation of their sinful choices. For we have been called not to live under condemnation, but to live under the freedom and the liberty that is in Christ. And Father, I ask that you would help us to live in that freedom. 
to walk in the Spirit and that you would truly give us the privilege of day-by-day victory over the lust of the flesh. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.